I ran across something this week which really struck me, and it made me think about the direction I should go for our teaching time today. We usually take a break during Advent to focus on matters of Advent, and so we did that for a few weeks during December. And then we usually take January and focus on things that are just pertinent to us during that particular time of year. Sometimes we focus on individual Christian disciplines, things that are important for us to remember in regard to being in God's Word, reminders for prayer, um, the, the use of our resources. Sometimes we talk about things like that. Sometimes we'll talk about family-related issues, uh, marriage and children, things that are just real practical stuff for us in everyday life. And so, we'll, we'll do some of that over the next few weeks. But I feel like as we face now on January the 4th, a brand new year in 2015, which is just hard to believe. I mean, I can't believe that we're, we're a whole nother year ahead now. If you're like me, you look at the year ahead and you know some things that are going to happen, but there's a whole lot that we, we just don't know. There's a whole lot of days that are shrouded to us. We, we can't look forward and see all the things that are going to unfold. And if you're like me, you look at that, the, the shrouded unknown ahead, and that, that can kind of freak you out. I said to you a couple of weeks ago that there's sort of an inescapable anxiety that most of us deal with. And for most of us, it's just it's just kind of like right below the surface most of the time. And the slightest provocation, the, the slightest tweaking of our normal existence can cause all of that to just come seeping out of the seams. Now, there's a few of you out there that, that just kind of go through life and nothing really phases you for good or bad. On your best days, you just kind of look like this, and on your worst days, you just kind of look like this, and nobody can really guess, Right? But for the most of us, uh, we're kind of volatile. We're all over the place. And, and because that anxiety is just right below the surface, not only do our circumstances change, but the way that we approach those circumstances changes. The emotions that come out of us change. One of the greatest weaknesses of evangelical teaching probably throughout Christian history, but certainly over the past 150 years or so, is that we have tried to tell people that their affections, their feelings, don't matter. That, that what we should do to people is just try to get them to, to obey a certain set of disciplines, to, to follow a certain set of rules, to connect the dots and cross their T's and dot all their proverbial I's, and then God will be pleased and they'll be pleased and everybody can just kind of go on. But the problem is we are affectional beings, we're a bundle of, of physicality and emotion, and, and we're whole people. One of the things that I love about the Psalms is that the Psalms help bring all that together. The, the Psalms give us a voice to praise, to weep, to be angry, to be fearful, to be, to be happy, to be at the pit of despair or to be at the, the zenith of joy. The Psalms do all those for us because God in His great wisdom knew that we as whole beings, body and emotion, needed a voice. 
Psalm 103 gives us a voice to express what it's like to, to trust a God for the unknown that lies ahead, for the shrouded days that we cannot quite peer into that hold things for us that we cannot quite anticipate. And as that meter of our anxiety sort of ticks up and ticks down and we look at the shrouded unknown days ahead, it would be easy to look at those days and just completely shrivel and give up or be freaked out or to remove ourselves in fear. We cannot escape the days that are ahead. They're going to come as inevitably as the sun rising in the east every single day. They are going to come. But how do we face such days with faith and confidence that that we're going to be okay even when things around us are not? There's a theologian named A.W. Pink. He's a bit obscure unless you're kind of a theological nerd. But he was wise and wrote a lot of good things, and he said this in 1942 to his people for New Year's. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Psalm 34:15 says that. Here, Christian reader is, to bar an expression from Spurgeon, good cheer for the new year. We know not what 1942 or 2015 holds for us, but those who by grace are trusting in the atoning blood of Christ may enter it with the assurance that the loving gaze of the Lord God is upon them. It is their privilege to enter each day rejoicing in the blessed fact that not for a single second will the Lord their God remove His eyes from them, cease to care for them, or fail to minister to them. Seek to frequently remind yourself that the Lord has pleasure in His people, that His presence is with and His power engaged on behalf of them, that they are assured of His protection and provision for their every need. Then, should they not be of good cheer? Should they not be delivered from worrying care? Should they not go forward in holy confidence and joy? Trials and tests are certain, and so also is their blessed outcome. In the darkest hour, remember, my brother, my sister, the eyes of the Lord your God are upon you. The eyes of His love, of His favor, of His compassion. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon you. What should be our response? The perfect example which our Savior has left us supplies the answer. I have set the Lord always before me. Yes, our eyes ought ever to be upon Him. So I believe that Psalm 103 helps us to do just that. It allows us to deliberately set our eyes on our God, whose eyes are always on us. In this psalm, we find that the sovereignty of God and the grace of God are put in front of us. David understood that apart from the reality of a sovereign and gracious God, there is no way that he or his people could face uncertain days ahead. So whether for David you're in the 10th century B.C. or A.W. Pink in the 1940s right before World War II, or here for us in 2015 with so many shrouded, uncertain days ahead, we must be reminded of the God whose eyes are upon us 
that I want us to focus upon that today. It's interesting from time to time to, to step back and, and consider our conception of God. I think for a lot of us, He's kind of like an afterthought. A lot of us grew up in Christian homes, so He's kind of always been there, kind of like gravity, kind of like oxygen. You know, I don't have to consciously think every moment to breathe. If I throw a ball in the air, I'm not surprised that it falls. Gravity and oxygen are just with us. They're kind of like an afterthought. If we're not careful, God can become like that. Maybe for some of us, He's kind of like a, a fallback talisman, like when things get bad, we, we resort to Him, and He's kind of a good luck charm. A lot of us sort of see Him as an absentee father that we cross our fingers will come through in the end. Some of us had dads like that. When we do these things, we're just projecting the disappointing limitations and shortcomings of humanity onto God, because He's really nothing like any of those things. But even more fundamentally, we're revealing that we know we're finite and that we're limited. And this freaks us out, because this world is a really messed up place, a place where children are hurt, people of different skin color fight, where the most important relationships in our lives disintegrate, finances run thin, and all of our dreams and hopes don't quite come to pass. And if this world is that messed up, and because we're finite, we're unable to fix it or manage it, it's really frightening. It's scary. We become like travelers that are out at night in the woods and the slightest sound of a cracking branch or a low groan freaks us out. How do we manage this? Well, on the good days, it's not so bad. But even then, there's a sneaking suspicion that things are about to come undone, that, that things are about to get bad again. And the slightest shift of the wind of our world might just bring all that anxiety back to the surface, and, and all of the tranquility that we have manufactured might just come crashing down. Our fears are kind of like our kids' boogeymen. Remember when my children were little, and they had a toy upstairs, and we would say to them, well, go get your toy. And they would say, well, we can't get our toy because it's upstairs. And I would say, well, it's like, it's like 30 seconds up the stairs. And they would say, no, Daddy, it's dark up there. And they would want me to come get off the couch from whatever I was doing and take their hand and walk them upstairs. Now, it's irrational. There's no such thing as the boogeyman, but our children believed it. And I think, frankly, as adults, we have, we have sort of more sophisticated boogeymen. Our fears, they're perhaps irrational, but they are there nonetheless. So, how do we go forward? How do we go forward knowing that, that there are hard things ahead, but perhaps even more than that, our fears and our, our anxieties make them much worse. They, they exacerbate the problems that we will face. How do we know that we're not alone, and how do we know that, that we'll be okay? The excerpt I read to you a bit ago from Pink 
I think, helps us understand that, that there has to be constant feeding upon truth, constant reminder of truth, or there's no way we can face the boogeymen, the, the anxieties that ebb and flow as we face difficult days ahead. And this is why, frankly, brothers and sisters, we must have the cumulative accrual of truth. Here's what I mean by that. All the time, every day if possible, we must be feeding on what's true. If you're being honest with yourself, you know that there's so many things that push back against that. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Whenever you have a couple that just gets married, and they go on their honeymoon, and they have their first big fight. Now, this is just theoretical. This may or may not have happened to us on the beach in Mexico. Um, That really hurts. But if you take the same couple 16 years later, and they have a big fight, the I love yous, the affirmation, the articulation of, of affection and commitment means way more 16 years later than it did on the beach the first week of their marriage. You see, what happens over time is that a couple comes to the point that they believe one another, that, that I am here for you, I'm committed to you, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, I will put up with your junk, I will forgive you, I will say I'm sorry, and so forth and so on. It's the cumulative value of affection an articulation, affirmation of commitment. And for many of us now, by this point in our lives, that's what God has done for us. The cumulative value of God affirming His care for us again and again, both through experience and through His truth, His Word, allows us to face the uncertain shrouded days ahead. But it's amazing, brothers and sisters, how quickly that can get undone. That can become brittle and blow away like dry leaves in the wind. And so one of the things I want to say to you this first Sunday that we gather corporately together is it's important for us to keep telling ourselves the same things over and over again. This is not just true for what we do corporately, it's true for you every day. Find ways by God's grace, not because you're trying to keep the rules, but because you get to, because you have the privilege to be affirmed in the Father's love all of the time. So let's do that together today as we start this new year. First thing I want us to see today in this passage that James read for us a bit ago is that He, God, is worthy of our confidence. David wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David begins by saying that God is worthy of of our confidence. You'll notice here in verses 1 through 5 and then again in verses 20 through 22 that David brackets this psalm. It's kind of like the two pieces of bread in a sandwich. He brackets it 
by talking about blessing the Lord. This is the idea of being thankful and saying it. Why does he do that? Well, it's our way of articulating our faith. It's one thing to say you believe something. It's, it's another thing to, to know you believe something inside, but saying it out loud and maybe even corporately doing that together, it's, it's a way of, of putting a voice to what it is that we believe. It has been said that the opposite of praise is forgetfulness. But notice here in this text, it says that we are to remember and not forget. Why is that said? Well, I've already said to you today that the, the cumulative value of being exposed to God's Word day after day, week after week, year after year, helps us rest whenever things are hard and all the boogeymen of our anxieties as we face the reality of real problems come to the fore, come to the surface. David says that God benefits us, He forgives us, He heals us, He redeems us, He crowns us with love and mercy, and He satisfies us and renews us. I said to you some time back that when it really comes down to it, to use perhaps a silly baseball metaphor, God is batting a thousand. I mean, as you look back through the annals of redemptive history, when was the last time He did not come through for His people? Now, that doesn't mean He doesn't do things that you don't like. It doesn't mean that He does not allow things that you would not purposefully, personally choose. He does. Most of us here in the church at this point have faced one thing or another like that recently, the death of a loved one, the sickness of a loved one, job stresses and sickness and so forth and so on. They're real and they are there. God allows things and even does things that we don't like. But David knew after much reflection, David was a guy who, who understood that to try to deny his feelings was folly. It led him nowhere good. So David explored his affections and and wrote them down, and it allowed him to wrestle with God. And as he took time to deliberately, purposefully remember, he came to the conclusion, who is this God? He's one who forgives and heals and redeems and crowns and satisfies. He always does, maybe not always in the way that I would choose, maybe not always in the timing that I would choose, but He does. And haven't you found that to be the case, beloved, as well? So again, what are we doing today? Well, we're starting off another year with lots of days ahead that we cannot quite peer into and see all the inner workings of, and we say to ourselves, He's been faithful in the past, and He'll be faithful in the future. The love that is mentioned here in verse 4 is the Hebrew word that some of you may be familiar with. If you're really cool today, you might even have a Hebrew hat tattoo, and there's about a 98% chance if you have a Hebrew tattoo, this is the word you have tattooed on your body. It's the word hesed. It's the idea of 
faithful, loving kindness. And by the way, if you're looking for ideas for a tattoo here in the new year, there's a good one. Um, so, so get that written down somewhere, whether physically or not. And the idea is that God never fails. He's full of loving kindness. You see, this is not sappy love. This is not like two 16-year-olds walking through the mall with their hands in each other's back pockets saying, I love you. This is proven love. This is committed love. This is love that heals and forgives and redeems and crowns and satisfies. This is love that will not let us go. This is the kind of love that David the psalmist, who was so in touch with his emotions, could rest in even whenever he was a big failure, even when everybody else around him was a big failure. What was David's conclusion? David's conclusion is, this God is worthy of our confidence. I in no way today want to diminish the reality of real trials because they're there. And some of you right now are in the throes of them. You are right in the middle of them. But I want to say to you that the God who is allowing the trials and orchestrating the trials is doing them for purposes that sometimes we cannot see, but you can trust Him anyway. How do we know that? Well, I think verses 6 to 14 teach us why. First of all, He knows our limitations. Verse 6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Verses 6 through 14 are probably not a great case study in American self-esteem theology. What I mean by that is you read these verses, you come away with the conclusion that we're not that great. We'll see in just a few moments that our God is. But one of the things that David is confessing here in these verses is when it really comes down to it, I don't have a lot to offer. I'm oppressed, and therefore I'm a victim. I'm weak. I'm sinful, therefore I need forgiveness. Uh, my, my frame is like dust because that's what I'm made from, and therefore I don't have a lot of stability. I don't have always really a lot of endurance. And because of all these things, what did David need to know? that the one who had fashioned him from that dust, who is justly angry when we sin, who could be dismissive because he doesn't really need us, that God, he wants us. And he delights in forgiving us, and he is patient with us despite the fact that we are made from the dust of the earth. 
So David could begin the psalm by saying, bless the Lord again and again, because this God is worthy of our confidence. Well, how did David know that? Because David had experienced this God being so very patient with his, David's, limitations. And that's true for us as well. Brothers and sisters, we are way more limited than we like to admit. That's hard to admit. This doesn't mean we don't have abilities. It doesn't mean we don't have strengths. But it means that even on our best days, we're just dust. One of the hardest things for me as a father has been dealing with my children's limitations, trying to to understand how long it takes them to catch up emotionally with what I'm trying to teach them cognitively. You see, it's easy as parents to give your kid a command, an order, to give them an expectation, but, but watching them, even their facial expressions, their body language, while they're processing that thing that they don't want to do or that they don't understand or that scares them or, or seems to threaten the, the little universe that they've created, it's hard for them. You have a couple of choices then as a parent. You can either bully them into submission or you can patiently shepherd them and love them as they come around not only cognitively but emotionally. Isn't that the way God is toward us? I think when it really comes down to it, though there are certain connections, definite connections between the way that God parents us and the way that we parent our children. He's so much different than us. Think about David. Here's a guy who came out of the fields taking care of sheep, was anointed by Samuel, was supposed to become the king, but the sitting king eventually, who originally loved him, wanted to kill him, threw a javelin at him, and then chased him around the countryside. And rather than existing in tranquility and peace, being groomed for his new role, he's living like a madman with the Philistines. He's living in caves. Eventually, he becomes king, but he makes horrible decisions, even to the point of committing adultery, murder. His own children turn their backs on him. His primary son who would take over the kingdom, eventually has the kingdom split in two, though David did not live to see that. A lot of good in David's life, but a lot of heartache. If you were to take David and put him in a modern leadership context, you'd see the good, but probably the bad would would be featured in any expose on his life. So, when David says here, that God brings justice to the oppressed. He knew what that meant because he had faced oppression from his own sons. When David talked about God chiding sinful people, not keeping His anger forever, casting sins as far as the east is from the west, David knew what that meant. David felt that. When David spoke of God showing compassion to His weak children made from the dust. David knew what that meant. 
And we, like David, are shot through with limitations. I don't think it's possible for us to do appropriate justice to these texts unless we look at them through the lens of Christ. Let's do that for just a moment. Look in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Some of you have faced things in your lives that are just downright unjust, and that's putting it mildly. How has God dealt with that? Can God identify with you who have gone through such things? The Scriptures teach us that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are and therefore can deal with our weaknesses and even right now, very literally, not metaphorically, He intercedes on our behalf because He gets it. What happened to the Son of God, the one who existed before time, the uncreated God of all creation, the one in whom no sin consisted, the one who was owed the worship of every creature on the earth, what happened to Him? He was born into obscurity. His life was sought in anger and wrath from the beginning of His days to the point that eventually in His early 30s He would be put to death by the very people that He created that He came to save. And through His death, through His oppression, His righteousness can be imparted to all who will receive it. In theological terms, we call this double imputation. To impute something is to credit something to somebody that they did not earn. Jesus did not earn wrath. We did. But our sins get credited to Him. We did not earn righteousness. Jesus did. But His righteousness gets credited to us. It's double crediting, double imputation. How does God work righteousness? How does He take care of the oppressed? Through Jesus who took the oppression and gives you grace instead. Why can God be merciful and gracious, slow to anger? Verse 8, why? Because all of His furious wrath was poured down on His Son. And if He loves you enough to do that, He will be patient with you. Why do we know, verse 10, that He will not deal with us according to our sins? In other words, in the way that our sin deserves, that the penalty that we have earned? How do we know that He will not repay us according to our iniquities? Because He's already dealt with His Son. He's already paid it out on Him. And if He went to those great lengths can we not with great confidence go into a new year knowing that His love is steadfast, it's great, it's strong? And again, as we've already mentioned, as far as the east is from the west, He removes transgressions from us. One of the things that I love about every new year is that I get to look back and say, the old one's over. I look forward to the new one with a lot of anxiety, but I look back and I'm, and I'm glad the old one's over. 
I'm glad the old one's over because some of the trials are now gone. I'm glad the old one's over because I failed a lot, a lot. I love the fact that the new year holds out for me, for us, second chances. And that may sound a little bit cliched today, but, but aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that there is a God who loves you so much that He gave you His Son, and there will always be second chances? Always. Because after all, your Father knows that you're limited. This does not excuse your sin. Confessing the fact that you're made from dust, admitting the fact that you're weak and fragile and frail and limited, does not excuse your sin. Sin is wrong. Sin is so awful that it caused the death of the Son of God. That's how bad sin is. And yet, sin is inevitable. You've got to be careful with that. That doesn't mean you have to sin. You don't have to sin, but you will. I want to reiterate that so you hear this clearly. You don't have to sin. You can always choose not to, but you won't always choose not to. You will sin today, probably before you go through those doors. But your father's not surprised by that. Again, this is one of the things that's so different from God parenting us as sons and daughters in the way that we parent our children. God's never surprised when we sin. He's upset every time we do, but He's not surprised. Somehow, even though I've been a parent for 10 years now, I'm still greatly surprised when my children do really dumb things. It'd be nice if I could get to the point that whenever they do it, I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm frustrated that you did it, but I'm not surprised. I probably shouldn't say that to them. That's probably not very compassionate. But one of the things that's important for me as a parent is just to remember they're limited. They're frail. But I think, and this is probably pretty important today, I think that the gulf, the span between me and my two little boys, as opposed to the span between God and me, His Son, is far shorter. In other words, I'm, I'm much closer to my children's limitations than I am to the strength of the Father. There's a much bigger gap between He and me than between me and them. Which means that even though I'm coming to the grips with the fact over time that my children are limited, how much more does my Father and His great wisdom and His great compassion and His great love look at me and say, Son, I want you to obey. You must obey. I expect you to obey. But I know you're weak. How do we respond to all of this? Well, verse 6, we can trust Him that He will take care of our oppression. He may not do it in the timetable that we would choose. He may not do it in the way that we would choose, but He will. And if He hasn't taken care of all of yours yet, I want you to bank on it. I want you to gaze expectantly at His face waiting for Him to do it. 
when it comes to your sin, be repentant. Repentance is more than just saying you sin. Repentance is changing. But the very God who forgives you from the sin is the one who will compassionately support you and help you as you change. And as you realize your limitations in the year ahead, you can trust Him that He will not cast you off, but that He will always be patient. It does us no good, frankly, to ignore sin. But we have to deal with it through the lens of Christ. Paul says to us in Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. You just wonder if Paul, when he wrote those things many years later, had these texts in mind. The God who casts sin as far as the east is from the west, what would He do to take care of that? What would be the final death blow to sin? Jesus would die on a tree becoming a curse for us to take away our curse and taking away all of our offenses and their penalties. That's how your God treats you. That's how much He loves you. So you can be confident in Him. So He knows our limitations, verses 6 through 14, but frankly, this God, He doesn't have any limitations. Verse 15, as for man, His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Notice in verse 14, we are dust. Verse 19, His throne, it's high above us. His kingdom rules over all. It's the opposite of dust. He's above the dust, and He controls everything made of dust. If we are severely limited, our Father is majestically unlimited. And that is why, in this text, David can have total confidence in Him. Once again, the steadfast love of the Lord is exposed to us here helping us understand that though this God is great and sovereign, He's full of grace. We've said many times around here that there is perfect harmony in all of God's attributes. So, the first big theological words that a lot of us learned when we were little is that God is omniscient. God knows everything. God is omnipotent. God can do anything. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Those are three sort of sophisticated ways of saying that God is sovereign over all things. Now, just to be clear, there's no such thing as partial sovereignty. God's not like the ruler of a little country. God controls everything in the cosmos. He made it all, and He keeps it spinning. Even to the point that when a sparrow falls to the ground, He knows that too. 
So he takes care of the big stuff like black holes and constellations. And he takes care of like every small thing too, even knowing every hair on your head. That's sovereignty. But if there was a God who was just sovereign, knowing everything, able to do anything, and always being everywhere, that would probably freak us out. But there's great harmony in the attributes of God, and, and David brings it out in front of us today. Yes, this God rules over all, and that's a little bit frightening. But this God always, always tempers His sovereign rule with kind, steadfast grace. And if there is a being like that, if there is a being who has no limitations in power, who holds the heavens in his hands, who sees everything, knows everything, and can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and he has no opposition. But at the same time, if such a God is shot through with grace, if every fiber, metaphorically, of his being is permeated with grace, then that God, that being, is worth trusting. You see, he knows that we are weak, but brothers and sisters, he's not. You don't know what lies ahead, but your God knows. You don't have power to deal with what's ahead, but he does. You can't be everywhere keeping all the proverbial balls in the air, but he can. Oh, and by the way, he is for you and He loves you. We're like grass that withers in the noonday sun and eventually loses its roots and blows away. This God is from everlasting to everlasting, but He loves you like you're a child. So, therefore, He's worthy of our confidence and David wants to make that very clear, and he ends the psalm that way. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David, with his whole being, is staking his claim on this God. David, like us, had tried everything else, sought for satisfaction, peace, rest, happiness, joy from every other possible resource, and all those resources had proven to be unsatisfactory. And David, through hard lessons, lots of sinful choices, came to the conclusion that this God was the only one whom he could trust, and this God would never fail him. So I say to you, this God who is put in front of us in this text as perfectly sovereign and yet tempered by gracious love, this one who has no limitations 
and yet understands yours. This one who is not seeking another like him because there are no other beings like him. The ones that he chooses to be with him are not like him. This God who has no limitations, this God who rules above all, brings close to Himself those who are not like Him, those who are weak, those who are sinful, those who are limited, those who are transient, those who are temporal, those who reject Him, those who are fearful, those who have no strength of their own, those who are oppressed. He brings them close to Himself, and He loves them with His great and unending love that is full of power and sovereign grace. He is worthy of our confidence. Why? Because He knows our limitations. And unlike us, He doesn't have any. And therefore, He's not only worthy of our confidence, He's worthy of our praise. Notice the way that David ends this psalm. He brings all of creation into the song. If there really is a God like this, who has no limitations, but is shot through with gracious love, what should the response be? That all of the cosmos gathers together in triumphant praise to the one who meets all of their needs and cares for them with grace. So, how do you deal with the next 361 shrouded days ahead of you in 2015? We don't even know what this afternoon holds, most of us. Most of our days this year, for most of us, will probably be just kind of okay. There'll be a few pinnacles of real happiness. There'll be some low points of great sorrow. For some of us, there'll be more days of great sorrow. There'll, there'll be some, some lengthy and, and, and de- deliberate pits of despair. But all of those pits of despair, whether they be deep or somewhat shallow, whether the the trials are long or somewhat short, all those pits, all those trials are made so much more difficult by the boogeymen of our anxieties and fears that, that don't know what's coming. So, how do we deal with the unknown? And then how do we deal with the trials when they come? How do we make it through? Well, we realize that when it really comes down to it, we don't really have any strength of our own. We're very, very limited. But the God who made everything, the God who made you, the God who knows you, the God who loves you, He doesn't have any limitations. Therefore, we say together today, this God, we bless Him. He's worthy of our confidence. This God, we bless Him. He's worthy of our praise. And so today, as we start the new year together as a corporate family, we confess our faith that this God who has never failed His people in the past will not fail us in the year to come. There's some scary things ahead. I know that. You know that. We've been around long enough to just know that. But He'll take care of us. Now, that sounds simplistic, but the only way you can make that your own is to go and study and explore and wrestle and meditate and believe 
and then do it again and again and again. Again, brothers and sisters, the cumulative value of being exposed to this truth and taking it in and making it your own is what will get you through. So make that your purpose in the year ahead, to know this God this way. But hopefully at least we've begun the right way this year. Maybe pursue the knowledge of this God who alone can sustain us in the year ahead. Let's pray now before we sing and close our time together. A prayer of trust and a prayer of commitment. Let's pray together.